there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. At one point in the month, 75% of the United States was buried in snow, and on cold Sunday, temperatures around the country dropped to their lowest mark in over 100 years. The South posted some wins. In Arkansas, a judge ruled against the mandatory teaching of creation, while in Hendersonville, Tennessee, the city dedicated the Johnny Cash Parkway. Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off a bat on stage in Des Moines, Iowa, and Richard Scrinta wrote the first PC virus code, a mere 400 lines long, ushering in a whole new way to screw up the world. Is it any wonder that we took refuge in theaters with the films of January 1982? Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. As always, I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? All aboard! <laughs> now, that that's one of those cultural memories that, uh, man... I, I will probably live to be 100, and if somebody asks me about Ozzy Osbourne, that will be the first thing I think of. Even as a kid, I remember thinking like, oh, I get it. You know, this, the, the thing about a, a rock singer, especially this kind of rock star, is that, you know, you want to be memorable and audacious and crazy. I'm going to get up on stage and everyone's going to think I'm awesome. I'm going to make out with a pig. It's like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing, man? Get that what? bat out of your mouth. <laughs> so let's just move on to the film's... Of January 1982, thank you for joining us on a new year here on 80s All Over. This is the year that I think a lot of people have been uh, itching for us to get to. I'm really excited because it definitely feels like this is now where the 80s start to establish themselves. One of the things we've been wrestling with is that first two years, it's still kind of the end of the 70s, and you're seeing a lot of trends from that play out. And I feel like 82 begins to react to the 80s and the change and everything. And this is definitely, it's exciting. Quick housekeeping, uh, as far as we pulled a boner, I don't think we have anything that we have to do. I will say that we are getting better at getting the dates right as we go, and that you guys have been an enormous help with that. Also, real quick, a Patreon plug. There is so much good content that we've shared with you guys here on the uh, the free stream. But for those of you who have not signed up to become a patron yet, let me tell you, it's a chance not only for you to financially support the creation of the show, because we are a completely independent program. We have now crossed the $1,500 monthly mark, and so we'll start setting new reward levels and figure out other things we can do for you guys. Visit us at www.patreon.com backslash 80s all over. You can also visit us at 80s all over.com and go to the 80s all over store where you can support us by buying things through a link that will kick a little back to us on Amazon and add nothing to your price. So please consider that. Drew, is it true that January 1982 is one of them there? 
horror movie heavy month. It really is. As we go ahead and we launch into the movies, uh, we are going to kick things off in a way that I have come to really enjoy the Scott Weinberg big ass horror movie roundup. Scott, January was not fucking around. Please. We open with Mad Men. They were parked in the woods on a summer night. They had been warned not to come here. No one is safe in this place at night. For God's sake, why don't they run while they can still get away? It's almost too late. There's something moving toward them, and the nightmare is beginning. Madman, rated R. You know, I'll say this for Madman. Somebody meant it. If you want to know how quickly it went from, oh, look, Friday the 13th, a new but very simple idea, to people churning out copies, the answer is Madman. It kind of feels like this is the first one where a fan said, I can do that. Because the burning feels like it's filmmakers and they're looking at a trend and saying, okay, we'll do this or whatever. Madman feels like a fan made it. It feels like somebody who saw Friday the 13th and went, holy shit, I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life now. I'm going to go into the woods and kill teenagers. And it's energetic and it ladles on the gore with both hands and it's goofy as shit from frame one. That's the adjective I was looking for. The movie opens with like an endless song. (laughs) This is this wild nerd just like and then the myth of madman more he's just like oh it's hilarious they really ladle on the idea that there's a mythology here if you say his name 17 times and you're walking backwards and you happen to be wearing blue jeans and your shoes are blue he will come back to life and murder you and of course they not only say his name three times but throw a fucking rock through his window well i don't know why it's just why Yo, fat boy, get up. What is the point of that? Even if he's dead, you could still just be respectful. It's not going to hurt anything. (laughs) Right? It's a movie. Yo, Drew, did you like the hot tub scene in this film? Honestly, my feeling about Madman is while you're watching it, it's like you're sitting next to the filmmaker. And every time something happens, he jabs you in the ribs with his elbow and he goes, see, see what I did? And you're like, yeah, I do. I see what you did. You're nuts. <laughs> it's and I, really you know what goofy. else I would say to that director? Why does your cast just for winter? Yeah. Uh, all right. It does have some fairly decent moments. It has a couple of like, scares. And I guess that if you were a horror, a, a specifically a slasher aficionado, you could do worse. To its credit, it is not knee-deep in misogyny and, and rape themes. It is just a very generic massacre movie and it's not very good it's funny i didn't even research who made it or anything i kind of like the idea that and this may be completely accurate but i like in my head imagining that whoever made madman that's the only film they made and it's the only film they ever needed to make because they got it out of their system that brings us to a really weirdly disturbing uh kidnapping thriller starring rip torn and kate mulgrew called a stranger is watching. There is a moment in your nightmare when the fear of being trapped is so great. You must use every ounce of strength to pull yourself back into reality. Sean Cunningham, the director of Friday the 13th, has created a living nightmare. A bizarre side of reality that is no longer essence of your mind, but a fact of inescapable fear. A stranger is watching. Radar. I watched this. It's a movie. But I don't remember anything beyond that. I mean, I watched it two weeks ago and I don't remember anything. I know Rip Torn is in it and I'm obsessed with Rip Torn. I think he's fascinating. He's a great character actor. I remember a scene where he kidnaps a young girl 
and he let and he opens the bag and he when he lets her out under Grand Central Station or wherever he's got her, and she had thrown up in the bag. So now for the next hour of the movie, all I can think of is a young girl in a sack bouncing around with her own vomit, and I'm like, why would you do that, movie? That's gross. <laughs> no. I, don't, I literally remember nothing, and I just watched this film. I, and what's crazy is I know I've seen it before, but even watching the second time, it was like, I don't remember any of this. You, you opened the scene with, I just saw a stranger is watching. <clears throat> I just saw a stranger is watching. The one with Rip Torn and Kate Mulgrew? Maybe. You don't remember? Was it directed by Sean Cunningham, the man who directed the original Friday the 13th? And Oh, they- you know, now that you say that, I have no idea. Wait, wait, how about this? It's got a Lalo Schifrin score that's pretty good. Oh, that's right. I still don't remember. It played on HBO endlessly, and a girl threw up in a bag. Oh, oh, okay, nope. Nope, not a thing. Oh, man. Sean Cunningham, I'm really sorry. And this was, I, I'm guessing, this was like his bid to get out of Friday the 13th, Phil. Like, to to show that he was capable of more and he can make a real movie. And It's got decent performances. It does. All right. Yeah. And it was fine in terms of production value. Like, it's not a badly made film. Well, the pacing is off. The tone is all over the place. Based on a Mary Higgins Clark novel, of all things. That's very mainstream and strange for him, because it really did feel like he came out of almost the porno end of the pool with the, when he started. And then this is Mary Higgins Clark is like my mom's version of a thriller. So like that is right down the middle mainstream. But even then, he made the movie kind of skeezy. So, yeah, that's a good point. It feels like he took a, you know, a standard kidnapping thriller and just said, well, in order for me to adapt this, I just got to sleaze it up a bit. It would be more interesting to say that it's offensive and, you know, horrible, but it's not. It's just very, very basic, you know, uh, but I am watching this movie. I am extremely grateful that Rip Torn did not get sucked into that horror villain. I can't get out of it phase in his career because God is Rip Torn, a funny guy. And to have Rip Torn just be a um, kidnapping psycho who barely says a word is a waste of a Rip Torn. That's a really good point is Rip Torn before this had done stuff like Payday, which is a wonderful movie that nobody's seen and had a reputation. Like he was a really difficult guy, evidently. And I am so grateful that he figured out a way to take that anger and that fury that is part of almost every performance of his, even the comedy stuff. And the right filmmakers figured that out because, man, you're right. If he had ended up just doing bad guy stuff for most of his career, what a waste that would have been of an amazing comedy performer. If what you yeah, if what you know of um, Rip Torn is almost exclusively Larry Sanders show. You have to watch this movie because he's a horrible person. And every 30 seconds, you kept expecting him to go like, ha, and he's never he never goes, ha, but (laughs) you keep expecting it because that's the actor. It really does feel like a TV movie. Just a sleazy TV movie. Yeah. TV movie when TV's parents went out for the night. All right. All right. Well, we're going to save the most interesting horror film for last. So, Drew, why don't you uh, introduce to our listeners a Peter Billingsley title? Uh, Ralphie made a horror film, and it's called Death Valley. No one knows you. No one has ever seen you before. And no one will notice when you're gone. 
Death Valley was a great place for a family vacation until the tourist business started dying. Death Valley, rated R. Paul Lamette and Catherine Hicks are a couple uh, who are traveling across the country, driving on a road trip with their little boy, played by Peter Billingsley, who is also the son of Edward Herman, who's in the film for five minutes and never returns. Then they go to a, uh, a ghost town, and they're stalked by Psycho. It has precisely one compelling plot point, and by compelling, I mean ridiculous, and it happens 85 minutes into the 91-minute film. You want to talk about a cast that you throw at a movie. Edward Herman, Stephen McHattie, Paul Lamette, and I am, I'm fascinated by Paul Lamette anyway, because I don't think the guy worked enough. There was this charm to him that I feel like, you know, we only got seat in a couple of films. I don't know the backstory. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it was just Hollywood didn't get him or whatever, but I find him so interesting. And for this to be one of the few movies that exists of his is frustrating to me. Right. I guess around 83, 84, the wheels kind of came off his career and, uh, I'm always fascinated by that when that happens. But instead of like focusing on, oh, they should have done more work. What we're hoping is that we can at least uh, spotlight their their good 80s work and, and show them some love. So, but Death Valley is basically a boy who cried wolf story. It all hinges on him finding this thing that the killer left behind. So, of course, now the killer needs to make sure that the evidence is gone. But it's not a bad setup, I guess. You've got Catherine Hicks and Paula Mattis, the the parents. That movie is... It feels like totally unrelated to this movie, and there's way too much of it. I like in horror films where you take the time to build characters and you take the time to actually make me like these people, but there is a fine line between that and never getting to your horror film. And it's marketed like a slasher film, which it kind of is in some way, but it seems to me more so that they're going for like a Hitchcock Jr. kind of vibe here. Well, it's like slasher adjacent. It's like the slasher movies happening over there. And this is the movie that's next to it. Uh, yeah, that's not bad. It, uh, this was a major release. Uh, I mean, I know the VHS was put out by Universal and it would had, a, you know, like you mentioned, a great, a really good cast and a good director. I like Dick Richards. He's a guy who, if you look back at his other work, like um, I really like Rafferty and the Goldust Twins with Alan Arkin and Mackenzie Phillips and Harry Dean Stanton. That's a really good, charming little movie. And he did a really good uh, Raymond Chandler film called Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchum, which as a Raymond Chandler fan, I got to say, I think it's one of the better Chandler adaptations. So I'm a little baffled by this one because it feels like a guy who time and time again had good casts, had good material and really made something of it. The studio backed horror uh, slasher films of this day make me think that like I, I picture a director like Dick Richards sitting with an executive producer and he's like, but I don't know how to do this kind of stuff. I don't get Halloween or Friday the 13th. I don't, that's not me. And and every older producer, and then picturing like a guy who's like 65, he's like, what are you talking about? It's just a, a kidnapping thriller with a little blood thrown on it. It's not, it's nothing, you know, and it's. And you want to talk about a weird year. Uh, the other film that Dick Richards was involved with in 82, which we'll get to later in the year, he was the producer and the original developer and almost a director of Tootsie. You're talking about a guy who had very different interests than this. De Tootsie is better than Death Valley. Little bit. Now we move from a very slight and forgettable horror film to a typically garish and disgusting exploitation of women. Morgan Fairchild in The Seduction. She's being watched. She's being followed. And she's about to be threatened by a man with one obsession. Jamie, I want to make love to you. Morgan Fairchild. 
alone, frightened, trapped like an animal. Now she's fighting back with the only weapon she has, herself. Morgan Fairchild, Andrew Stevens, The Seduction, rated R. Starts tomorrow at a theater near you. Ugh, I like pretty girls, and I I want to look at them through a telescope. And this is this is a pervy little movie, dude. I don't like pervy, leering, gross movies. They make me well. They make you complicit. Andrew Stevens is. I mean, he is the perfect antagonist for gross direct-to-video sleazy movies. Like, there's something about him. He looks gross. Andrew Stevens or Wings Hauser. Oh, uh, and we'll talk about Wings later. But yeah, it's there is a grossness to him that is undeniable. And first of all, closing credits of this movie, I would just like to point out the transportation captain for this film, Frank Darabont. Shut up. It's true. So I think the new cover for this should come out and say, from the director of Shawshank Redemption, just lean on it real hard. You should like Frank Darabont at 4.30 in the morning, pulling up to like a Doubletree Hotel, be like, eh, eh, Morgan Fairchild, come on. <laughs> Michael Sarazen, get in the car. And this was Morgan Fairchild's uh, big screen debut. This was her jump to films, and it was going to be the movie that kind of launched her. And she's terrible you know what though take it back a step further how sad and you touched on this several episodes ago how sad is it that a glorified i spit on your grave reboot is like considered an actress's big acting break because even if morgan fairchild never turned out to be a great actor which some would argue she never did how sad that this would be a woman's like big debut the movie is about nothing but her being leered at stalked terrorized, pawed, and drooled on. It's, you know, we talked about Ms. 45, which I think Ms. 45 is so great at putting you in her shoes and making it her movie. And that is what this movie never gets right. And part of the problem is that we spend so much time with Andrew Stevens that even though he's clearly the bad guy, the movie doesn't treat him as such. It keeps spending time with him and his interests and how he does things. I don't want to be with him. I don't want to spend time with the stalker i find it really unpleasant and i think the movie has no idea really how to make him the antagonist it ends up weirdly empathizing with him it makes you feel very complicit and it is a stalker's manifesto in some ways yeah it reminds me a lot of uh two other films that we covered the fan and eyes of a stranger and it's like the idea is okay a very unhinged younger man is is stalking a an accomplished beautiful woman and it's like okay that's your script that's it that's a premise not a plot and they don't know what to do with it they don't know what they're saying about it other than look at it happen and we're going to spend way too much time with the stalker while we do it there's a way to do this stuff and there's a way not to and this is the way not to yeah it's it's a shitty ugly nasty movie and uh uh, this next one, we're including it here because I think it's sold frequently as a horror film, but it's a very weird movie that is really more kidnapping thriller with an animal attack movie grafted on. We're talking about the very weird, very strangely cast Venom. What are you afraid of? Some people are scared of the dark. Some are being alone. Some are frightened by shadows. And some by the unknown but there is one thing we all fear and right now it's waiting for you 
Venom, a new experience in motion picture suspense. Rated R. The Dainty Ape is back. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to sit down. If you're jogging while you're listening to this podcast, jog in place. If you're in the dentist chair, hold one finger up to ask him to pause. Because I'm about to go through the cast of Venom, which, and I don't mean this as a challenge, is a film you probably haven't even heard of. Oliver Reed. Sterling fucking Hayden? Klaus Kinski just became available. Do you want him as the uh, as the nasty one? <laughs> yes, please. That would be great. All right. And who do you have for female leads, Drew? Sarah Miles. Ooh, as a toxicologist. I like sure. it. Sure. Um, how about a cop? How about Nicole Williamson? Ooh, that'd be great. And we could cast Susan George, too. She'll be our misdirect. She'll be our Janet Lee because everybody <laughs> thinks Susan George is the big star. And then when this horrible black mamba attaches itself to her face, people will not believe it. They won't. They won't believe any of it. This movie's kind of fun, and it's also a little bit dull. But when it's fun, it's really fun. It's it's sweaty and crazy sometimes and when it is sweaty and crazy i will agree with you it's fun there's there's a moment near the end of this thing where klaus kinski is yelling out the window at the policeman and his accent in this movie is unreal so i'm gonna do an exact reproduction here he yells out the window hey policeman and then his next line is and i quote policeman it's full of that and uh, that's kind of where the drama is pitched too. It's they they kidnap a kid accidentally. They're planning to kidnap him, but then they, it becomes a hostage situation, and they end up all trapped in a house. The kidnappers, the kid, his grandfather, and a black mamba snake that will kill you with one bite. It is a really bizarre film in terms of structure and pace and. Like you said, that cast, we've got Sterling Hayden occasionally just randomly lurching into scenes and being full on Sterling Hayden. It's just not a movie that I can easily like sum up. Yeah, this is directed by Pierce Haggard, who uh, interestingly directed the the BBC uh, version of Pennies from Heaven and uh, some of the Quatermass series. Yeah, he's he's pretty good when he's got his chops on. He's pretty good. There are moments in this. I Oliver Reed's death is a four-star spectacular. It's about seven minutes, eight minutes long. He dies magnificently. It's like John Malkovich in Con Air. He gets six six consecutive death scenes, and it just gets wily coyotied up and down. The only one that's better is Klaus Kinski's. And again, without getting too far into what happens, I've never seen a guy try to shoot a snake in the head while holding it in his hand. If you want to see a shrieking Klaus Kinski try to shoot a snake with a rifle while he's holding both. Oh, and it's great because he overplays it so much. They must have told him, look, it's a really bad rubber snake. So do what you can to sell it. And what he can do to sell it is evidently whirl around the room, screaming and shrieking and waving his arms like a lunatic. It's something else, yeah, man. Klaus Kinski must have been like the kind of guy where if you were a director and he would say, oh, where do you want it? And he'd say, I want it at a seven. And he'd be like, okay. And then he goes out and does a 90. <laughs> You're like, Klaus, no, no. We said seven. I, okay. Wow. <laughs> wildly swinging this snake. Oh, it has some decent special effects. But for the most part, you cannot escape when you're in a cheesy snake movie that it's a rubber snake and a lot of stock footage. Last comment. Best use of a sniper ever. Ever. Venom, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> or, as, or as I like to call it, phenomenal. 
Shut up, Drew. It's my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've gotten Madman, A Stranger is Watching, Death Valley, The Seduction, and Venom out of the way to make room for the legendary, immortal film you've probably never heard of, Clint Howard in Eric Weston's <laughs> Evil Speak. Everyone's known a boy like Stanley Coopersmith. Evil Speak. He's the kid everyone used to pick on. Screwed up for the last time, Cooper Dick. You see, everyone thought Stanley was a joke. <laughs> An outcast with no one to turn to. You guys broke my catapult. You're gonna pay for that. No one except man's most advanced machine. Stanley used the power of man to call on the powers of evil. I, Stanley Cooper Smith, command you! Evil speak. Remember that little kid you used to pick on? Well, he's a big boy now. Dude, can I tell you how distracting that is? Bob from that 70s show should never be your bully. He's the evil, evil man, too. Oh, my God. It's so distracting. All right. All right. There's so many things about Evil Speak that touch onto my childhood that it might. I think it might have been the first. It was probably the first film that my my mother walked in on and was not pleased. My parents were cool generally with me watching horror films. But there is some stuff in Evil Speak involving a woman, a shower and a ravenous pig. If you were 12, 14 years old, you don't want your mother walking in on that moment. It's gross. Clint Howard, the legendary character actor Clint Howard, in a lead role. So that already, that should make you interested right there. I don't do this often, but I am going to offer a trigger warning on Evil Speak. Something really bad happens to a very small dog. And if that stuff bothers you in horror films or in films in general, I legitimately am telling you, do not watch Evil Speak because it is disturbing. And it's one of those things where as soon as they introduced that poor little dog, you knew it was coming. Yeah. And it's that one moment is the, obviously the big, big inciting uh, moment that, that causes Cooper Smith to finally lose his mind, go down into the basement, find an, an, an ancient Apple IIc computer, resurrect the devil with a 1981 Apple whatever, Amiga? I don't know what computer it is. Oh, it's it, an Apple II. Yeah, and it's. I love that in this world, and in early 80s films in particular, computers came preloaded with all the information in the universe on them. There, there's no internet, so I don't know what Cooper Smith is doing when he's typing book into this computer, and it's telling him, oh, that's uh, Esteban, who was a uh, demon of the... How do you know that? Where is it coming from? There is no Apple II package with... Maybe they cut a scene where he inserted a floppy disk called Ancient Sumerian Demon Tantations. <laughs> you don't know, Drew. They don't have to show everything. Well, I, you know, admittedly, I heard Waziak was really into Sumerian. So, right, Well, this is a very raucous, colorful, often garish, sometimes ugly horror film. And for that reason, it really stands out. I saw it when I was a kid, probably way too young. And then I gave it a revisit probably three or four years ago. As in like a shitty, cheesy, sleazy, I shouldn't be enjoying this EC Comics kind of way. There's some nasty fun stuff in Evil Speak. 
you've got Joe Cortese running around as the reverend and the least authentic priest I've ever seen in a movie. I don't believe for a second this guy is a priest. Right, like the authority figures in this camp are him, R.G. Armstrong, and Hamilton Camp. <laughs> and here's my theory on Hamilton Camp in this one, who, even if you don't know the name, you've seen Hamilton Camp in 18 million things. This guy worked in everything, and he's a cartoon voice. He's done a million voices for things. My theory is he showed up on the first day, read his part, and went, um, there's really nothing here. Can I do a German accent? And they went, I don't know. Can you do a German accent? He goes, not really. And they went, great. It's <laughs> completely unnecessary. And as Esteban, everyone's favorite night court bailiff. Richard Mall. I, if you were to say this movie is as low-minded and as sleazy as uh, as the other horror films that we've dismissed already in this and previous episodes, that's fine. I, I totally get it. It, it. It's got the puppy thing. It's got the pig thing. It's just very mean-spirited, and they ladle on how awful these bullies are before, just so we can enjoy Cooper Smith's revenge. But my argument is you don't need to go to 20 with bullies. You can just go to, like, 8. You don't have to do these horrible, horrible things that make your potentially fun horror movie feel ugly. And look, Clint Howard is one of those guys who, simply by virtue of how he looks, Clint Howard has become, A, enormously recognizable, even if you don't know who he is, and B, he's almost always cast a certain way. This is probably one of his biggest roles. It's one of the only top Bill Clint might be the only top Bill Clint Howard movie ever made. There's that one scene when he finds the, the litter of the puppies and he picks the one little puppy up and they're telling him, no, no, it's, it, you know, it's a runt, let it die. And Clint goes for the Oscar in this moment where he turns to him and he's like, maybe you're right, man. Maybe this puppy should die, man. It's a tough world out there and you got to kick and scratch, man. And he goes for it in that moment. And you're like, oh my God, Clint Howard took this a hundred percent seriously. True. I never knew you did a Clint Howard. That was and great. And it really, by the end of that scene, you're like, okay, I think Clint Howard is 100% in this movie. And the baffling thing about this is, like many films in the 80s, it ends with a very clear setup for a sequel. And there's never been an evil speak too. How did that happen? How in a world where we got 19 movies in every shitty franchise from the 80s, how was there never an Evil Speak 2? Because this thing opened well. It did fairly good business in New York and L.A. And it's one of those movies that was around for a long time. I would recommend you watch Taps and Evil Speak together as a double feature. 1982 is a big year for Richard Mall being resurrected. Yeah, well, what else is a guy like that going to do? So there you go. Uh, to everybody who thinks that the 1980s were a, a, a blissful oasis of horror, in some ways they were. But on the other hand, imagine you're a film critic in January of 1982 and your assignments are Madman, Stranger is Watching, Death Valley, The Seduction, Venom, and Evil Speak. Now, even if you were an open-minded, horror-loving film critic, that starts to get a little tiresome. This next uh, film... It's interesting. This is on Amazon Prime right now, and it's a very early, early, early film from a director who's gone on to a fairly solid and interesting documentary career. This is the earliest of his pictures I've ever seen. It's a movie called Soldier Girls. Whenever you need me, you just ask for your buddy Jackie Hall, H-A-L-L, -L, okay? And wherever I am, I'll get you. And if we have to cry together, we'll cry together, okay? If we got to do push-ups together, we'll do them together, okay? And you remember that. If you have to cry, you come get me so I can cry with you. 
Because we're going to get through this together. And I swear to God, we're going to get through this together. We all are. Because I'm, I'm not going to make it through without anybody. You're not going to make it through without anybody, okay? Come on. You're going to make it. We're going to make it. Seeing this right after Private Benjamin would be very interesting because you, Private Benjamin, of course, you know, you've got Goldie Hawn, you've got she's sort of the pampered princess, and that's the joke. But Private Benjamin does start to get real in the second half, and it's not necessarily easy for her, and it's not all played as a joke. It's it's played as there is an actual evolution for her as a person. Soldier Girls, it looks like it was fucking misery to start to create a co-ed army because there was no real system in place for even how to begin to speak to female recruits. When you see like the basic training stuff and you see how they, because, you know, basic training is a process by which largely you have to break the individual down to create people that fit into a unit. And that is a process. And there is a way by which you break personalities down and you strip people of the the things that make them fight or that make them uh, antagonize authority. And you have to do that. That's what military training is. And so these women, many of them took this as a last option. Like there's no other place for me to go. I guess I'll go into the army. And many of them are ill-equipped for what happens to them in the basic training. And the stuff that really bothered me was just watching these drill instructors tear these women to the ground. Yeah, the psychological games, discomfort is uh, both very painful and also a, a compliment to the director, I suppose. He never flinches. He never he never pulls back from any of this. And I'm frankly amazed the army let any of this footage out because it's one of the most naked looks at how harrowing it can be and how if you don't fit, if you're somebody who joins the army and you're not equipped for it, it will grind you up. It's interesting for personalities. There's there's several characters who sort of emerge over the course of the film, several of whom I can't imagine made it through the entire process. Yeah, I wonder, Drew, if you were a woman, do you think that this movie would inspire or or prevent you from wanting to? I would hope it would prevent anybody from necessarily wanting to. I mean, male or female, but it's got to be a radically different army now. I would be really interested. In fact, if you're listening to this and you are female military, if you're somebody who's made a career out of the military, I would love for you to see the film and tell us if things have changed. If you feel like if the system has gotten better and it's adjusted to the fact that there's men and women in the system now, I, I it is such a time capsule because I cannot imagine this is the modern army. I, th- I think it's a portrait really of an army trying to figure out what they're going to be in the future. Yeah, it really is. It's like a giant monolithic machine taking a step in the right direction. And, you know, it's all ramshackle. And is it going to work? Is this experiment going to fail? It's a fascinating documentary because on one hand, you want these women to succeed. You want to see them, you know, do something and be happy. And on the other hand, it's like, is that the place that you're going to find that? And it also, I, I think, speaks to how different documentaries are. Documentaries now are very slick. And there is it's they're kind of this parallel film industry where, I think there are documentaries that come out each year that are as professionally made and as beautiful and as accomplished technically as any narrative film that comes out. I don't think there's really much difference now in terms of craft. Documentaries were not really that in the late 70s, early 80s, and especially this kind of verite thing. And we're going to move now from Broomfield, who I think was still just figuring out who he was, to a filmmaker who, from the very beginning had his voice clearly figured out and in place. We're talking about the great Errol Morris and Vernon, Florida. Just like any town, anywhere you go, you're going to have little incidents. 
wouldn't you like that to see some old, some guy that, uh, or some kid that did something wrong, you know, and they'd tar and feather him, you know? And, well, he'd have something to think about, wouldn't he? The next time we'll give you the hot seat, buddy. This is one of the few R.M. Morris films I hadn't seen prior to the podcast. Ooh, yeah, so I love I, this one. Yeah, I'm like, I knew virtually nothing about it. For all I know, Vernon, Florida could have been about racists, or it could have been about uh, funeral homes. It could have been about stuffed pets. It could have, But no, it's basically just about a small handful of the denizens of Vernon, Florida, and uh, the way that they're decidedly unique perspectives on life. You mentioned how Evil Speak would make a good double feature with Taps and Soldier Girls might make a good double feature with Private Benjamin. Vernon, Florida and Honky Tonk Freeway would make a fascinating double feature because Vernon, Florida is literally a traffic light. That's the town. It is 17 square feet, basically, that a road runs through. And what I love about this is by stopping in this town, by meeting these people, you get a sense that a lot of these small towns are people that it's not that they don't want to go live in the city. It's not that they don't have the ambition to go do something else. It's that where else would these people go? Where else would these people fit? Every one of the people that we meet in Vernon, Florida is beyond eccentric. They are the most unusual, whether it's the old man who has the crazy pen in his yard that's full of box turtles and possums and who tells that horrifying story about the horse and the fish or whether it's the turkey gobbler obsessed hunter all of these people just blow my mind and they're so 100 themselves not one of these people seems wishy-washy about who they are they are loud about who they are what's interesting is you know in a documentary like this which is i mean it's only 55 minutes long you go through like a thought process with documentaries like this which is the first thought is, what's this about? Then you're like 20 minutes in and you're like, okay, so it's just a bunch of interviews with these weird people. That's not that interesting. And then 15 minutes later, you're like, yes, it is interesting. There's nothing revelatory or shocking about the human condition in this movie, but these are just interesting characters. That's all. Like, they have weird, sometimes insightful, sometimes uh, touching anecdotes. Errol Morris found them interesting, and maybe you will too, but there's really no more to it than that. This is a film that I've watched a lot in the uh, when I first found it on video. And it is. It's just you listen to the rhythms of these people and you listen to the way they think and the way they reveal themselves. And to me, that's Errol Morris's gift is that he is so good at saying to somebody, OK, I'm just going to start asking you questions. And then he draws things out of them. They may have never planned to reveal on camera. You just see who they are. And that is it's not about judgment or anything else. It's about revealing. And I think he is one of the great X-ray artists who's ever worked on film. Anybody can be interesting. And that's the beauty of, of Errol Morris and Nick Broomfield and great documentary filmmakers is that they find what's interesting. It doesn't matter if, what? It's about a, a pet cemetery. What? He made these this film between Gates of Heaven and The Thin Blue Line. And you can find it on Netflix right now. So if you're curious about it at all, it's very easy to get your hands on Vernon, Florida and well worth your time. Uh, one thing that bothered me is like I kept waiting for Vernon, Florida to show up and none of the characters are named Vernon. And I just. <laughs> and that comedy segue brings us to a hell. No, just kidding. It's a sobering acerbic drama about the painful uh, ramifications of divorce. Starring Albert Finney and Diane Keaton. Shoot the moon. 
the electricity of Midnight Express, the excitement of fame. One man has captured them both. His name is Alan Parker. He creates the kinds of films that have never happened before. Now, it's happening again. I was never right for you, was I, George? It was like I sang all the music, but I never knew the words. Albert Finney, Diane Keaton, Shoot the Moon, rated R. This is far and away, no question, the best movie we covered this month. I think this is an amazing screenplay by Bo Goldman, and I think it's one of Alan Parker's most lacerating movies. I am a huge Alan Parker fan. Uh, He's one of the few filmmakers that I would say in most cases couldn't make a really terrible film if he tried. He just doesn't have it in him. He's just got this enthusiasm and sincerity and this passion for the human spirit. I mean, he's made so many good films. I always point to The Commitments because The Commitments is just like a a smile in, in movie form. Well, he's one of our great underrated musical filmmakers of all time. He has done so many phenomenal We've musicals. covered him in fame. He also did Pink Floyd, The Wall. He did Birdie, which we'll get to. Shoot the Moon, I will freely admit, I had to sit with it for a while because it is a very icy and non-traditional narrative in that we are there as a divorce, as a family is falling apart, but it does not give us any of the conventional, oh, he's been missing for like three days out of the week and she's been like it drops us into the moment right before that unconventional um approach threw me at first but as the film goes on and ends and i sat with it for a day an hour a day a week i i've come around and i i I think a lot more of the film than i did as i was watching it if that makes any sense Sure. Well, and here's the thing. Divorce was still a fairly new subject for filmmakers. It was something that people were just starting to grapple with culturally and what it is. And I don't know that I think it's just about divorce, but what you said, it's like modern romance. It starts where a lot of movies end and it picks up just after the rot has set in. And I think the cast in it is unbelievable. You've got Albert Finney, who was in the middle of his great early 80s cash in tour. Um, He wrapped Looker on a Friday. He started this on a Monday. Diane Keaton's coming in off of Reds. She's just broken up with Warren Beatty, and she walks in and immediately starts pushing Bo Goldman and Alan Parker on her character and saying, I know what this feels like. I want to make sure I get this right. And so a lot of what you see in this movie, Diane Keaton wrote and she pushed for and she wanted to get right on film. And I think she's amazing in it. I I think she's better in this than she is in Reds. Here's the sad thing is this got pushed to January so that Reds could get its full Oscar campaign. I think if this had been the movie that they really pushed, this might have been the win because she is unbelievable in it. And what I think is really great about the movie and what it gets right that very few films about divorce are willing to do is the toxic anger that exists between these people. And look, he is by far the worst of them. Uh, he His anger in this movie is shocking. There's the scene where he tries to bring Dana Hill her birthday present and drop off the typewriter. By the end of that sequence, when you look at what's happened from when he shows up at the door to when he leaves the house, it's terrifying and it's the end of the world yeah it's a it almost feels like a cautionary tale it's almost saying divorced fathers or fathers going through a divorce you are going to feel this helpless you are going to feel this unnecessary and don't do what this guy does right what do you want to be do you want to be the destructive force that burns your family to the ground forever or do you want to be somebody who works towards having two families that are starting to heal 
and Finney cannot let go of the anger in this movie. Karen Allen plays the girl that he's uh, canoodling with, and Peter Weller uh, plays the gentleman pool installer uh, who, uh, who Diane Keaton may or may not uh, decide to be extramarital with. And those are both two good performances, I think. Oh, great. They're great. She's she's great. And I love that the kids call her for being phony early on, like they figure her out fast. I think you could tell a lot about a movie about divorce by how the kids are written. Well, for, OK, we got to talk about the kids. This is a murderer's row of TV kids. You've got Dana Hill. You've got Tracy Gold. You've got Tina Yothers. And all of them, of course, later were like regulars on television shows because they were that good as kid actors. You put the three of them together and uh, the four of them, because there's the fourth sister as well. But you let them build this relationship. It all feels real. There's an early sequence where they're going out to uh, to an evening and they're getting ready to go. And you watch the girls as Diane Keaton's getting ready. It's one of the most realistic family dynamics. And the girls are all beautiful together. It's almost annoying. It, it stops short of being annoying. These girls are the most realistic gaggle of young daughters I've ever seen in a movie. They talk over each other. They're constantly yammering. And, like, the point is supposed to be that these children represent, like, this one voice, you know? And it's a fascinating approach. They're all well-written. They're all interesting girls. But but they're most interesting when they just kind of represent just this, this mad, this loud mass <laughs> represents our responsibility. Dana Hill, who I, I think, never really quite got her due as an actor. She was 18 or 19 when they made this, and she's playing a 13 or 14-year-old. She is unbelievable. Her work is Sherry in this film. Most people will remember her. She played Audrey in European Vacation, correct? So yeah, Shoot the Moon, it took me a little while to warm up to it, but once I rattled it around in my brain for a while, I, I agree with Drew. I think it's one of the more uh, poignant and insightful films about divorce. And it's weird because it's built, even though it's a, a straight drama and almost every scene is just interpersonal stuff, it feels like it's built around set pieces because you've got the typewriter scene, the unbelievable tennis court dedication sequence at the end through the whole movie, as much as you know, I'm coming off of I'm four years out now from from the end of my marriage and I am, you know, in a new relationship and everything's, I think, good and solid and the kids are happy again. We've gotten to a place where there's balance in, in our lives now. But watching this movie, man, all of it, it's like the scab just comes right off. And I think. What I hurt for the most this time watching it, the last time I tried to watch it, I was in the middle of everything and there was too much whiskey involved and I couldn't see the movie. This time watching it, who I really hurt for is that girl is Sherry because, man, every adult in this movie is fucked in the head. They are all terrible people at being parents and at being caregivers and they're too caught up in themselves and i think that's part of the point as well is this is a movie about how these people can't see past the end of their noses to see the damage they're doing yeah and like you said that the film almost has an episodic nature like a vignette kind of approach and i i noticed that as well and it wouldn't surprise me if what bo goldman was a phenomenal writer he wrote the rose he wrote melvin and howard he wrote cuckoo's nest he either experienced this or knew somebody who did, and he picked out the three, four, six most formative, not necessarily scariest or most painful, but the six or seven most formative, important moments of this stage in his life. And those are the six. It's like when you remember your childhood, you don't remember an ongoing narrative. You remember a series of moments. And that's kind of what Shoot the Moon feels like. I, I'm not actually surprised by your reaction, Scott. I think it's a movie that will, it gets inside you and then, with time, you start to realize, damn, 
that thing like left cuts and wounds and bruises. It is tough. Now we move from a uh, heartfelt and sincere story about divorce <laughs> to a wacky, crazy, yuck, cop procedural called Vice Squad. Newspapers only print it. Television can only record it. Now, one motion picture lets you experience it as it's never been shown before. Go. The Hollywood Vice Squad. The real story. Radar. Now playing at a theater near you. This is where a great director kind of went to seed. I hate to say it. But this is from director <laughs> Gary Sherman, who directed Deathline, a.k.a. Raw Meat. And he also directed Dead and Buried. And following this film, he would direct the Gene Simmons, Rutger Hauer film, Wanted Dead or Alive. And I'm sorry, but the guy who directed Deathline and Dead and Buried deserves better than Vice Squad. I think Vice Squad is a terrific grade Z movie. I think it's got a great hook, which is beginning of the movie, you've got Ramrod, who is a filthy pimp played by Wings Hauser, who beats the living shit out of uh, MTV VJ Nina Blackwood, playing MTV VJ Nina Blackwood, evidently. And after he beats the hell out of her, she calls a friend. She says, oh, my God, I'm terrified of Ramrod. He finds her, kills her before the friend gets there. And her friend, Princess, goes to the cops, reports her death, and the cops ask her to help him catch Ramrod. So the whole first act is just getting all this in place. She goes undercover. She helps catch Ramrod. She makes the mistake of telling him in the room, I'm the reason you're going to jail. And on the way to jail, he gets out. She's back on the streets working, has no idea he's out. And the rest of the movie is who's going to get to her first, the cops or Ramrod? I think that is a terrific structure for a B movie like this. OK. All right. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree. I'm, uh, whereas movies like Ford Apache, the Bronx were relatively earnest attempts to show a that, you know, there are good and bad cops. There are good and bad people on the street. This is a difficult situation that we're trying to like good people are trying to do the right thing. But, you know, it's not easy to be good and morality play and da, 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 da. this just feels like a nasty TV pilot. It's funny that you brought up Fort Apache, the Bronx, because I think when this was sold, this was sold the same way Fort Apache was, which is. You've seen cop movies on TV and you've seen cop movies, but this is what it's really like on the streets. And both Fort Apache and this leaned on that heavily in advertising. The only thing that Vice Squad is like is the Terminator, because Wings Hauser is the unkillable pimp. He if you had told me that they had cut out a scene where he landed and, and climbed out of a spaceship and was immortal, <laughs> I, would I would believe you because he is unstoppable. I do like the energy of it, and I do like that structure. I, and look, this is one of those movies that could never exist now because of cell phones. You would just call her and say, hey, princess, um, he got away. And she'd go, oh, cool, I'm leaving. And the end of movie. Here, obviously, there's no way to get hold of her. She's back on the street. Faith Hubley, who plays the role, she's fine. The The rest of the cast, it's fine. I don't think the cast is necessarily terrific, except Wings Hauser, who is gnawing on the edge of the frame at every point. He is crazy over the top. Wings Hauser... Remind, it's like if somebody were like to extract the worst parts of John Lithgow and turn it into a human being, the the overacting sleazy John Lithgow, if there was such a thing, which there is not. And I love that the, the opening and closing theme song in the movie, which is terrible and is called Neon Slime, it's sung by Wings Hauser. Bang, bang, shoot them up, talking about crime. 
my problem with Vice Squad is that it's it's not sleazy enough. Like, if you're going to go full-bore B-movie exploitation cop, go farther. This kind of feels like, like a safe cop movie with a couple of nasty moments. And that's why I think I prefer Hollywood Vice Squad. And we'll get to that in a couple more years. My favorite footnote about this movie is that it was shot by John Alcott. And John Alcott is a goddamn legend, and deservedly. He shot Clockwork Orange. He shot Barry Lyndon. And if you don't know the story of how Barry Lyndon was shot, it is literally every cinematographer's fantasy. It's shot by candlelight and or natural lighting only. There's not an artificial light used in that movie. And it was Kubrick trying to see how that would work. So Alcott frequently would use new film stocks, and he would experiment with things. The only reason he shot Vice Squad is he knew Gary Sherman personally and said, look, I have this new high-speed film stock. I want to see how it works when you're shooting in a city at night. I know you're doing this thing. I'll shoot it for you if you'll let me use the film stock. So this whole thing is literally a camera test for John Alcott, one of the great cinematographers of all time. He did it just to see what would happen. I love stuff like that where you get a guy working way below his pay grade, simply because there was this personal connection to, to Sherman, and he felt like, yeah, sure, why not? Ramrod forever. And then we move to our final film of the month. Drew said Shoot the Moon might be his pick for the month. I think this might be my pick for the month. It's uh, Jack Nicholson and Harvey Keitel in Tony Richardson's The Border. Within every man, there are two men. One who does what he's told to. There's some real big money on the table. One who does what he has to. Look for that kid you took off the truck. Within every man, there is a border. Once he crosses it, there's no going back. Charlie, I can't believe we could work something out. Jack Nicholson, The Border, rated R. I'm not on board, and I I wanted to be. It's it's a movie about border guards in you know in El Paso, Texas, in 1980, and Jack Nicholson plays a guy who gets uh, brought in. He gets roped into it, basically. Valerie Perinus is a wife, and she has a friend who's married to a border guard in El Paso, and they have a duplex that they'll share with them if they move to town. And so he moves to town. He's got a job waiting for him. Harvey Keitel is the guy that that brings him in, and um, he goes right to work on the border. And there's so many little details about this that I like, and I wanted to love the movie. I just never felt like, to me, it connected into something that actually had a point um other than a fairly facile point which is you know maybe mexicans are people oh yeah it is not much more than a you know your standard uh an idealistic person goes into a corrupt system and then we get to see does he get corrupted well it's jack nicholson so mm, probably not all that much corruption to him so it's in in some ways that plot is conventional and in here it's transplanted to uh you know like drew said a, a texas border town and and uh it's fascinating to see like the, the dirty cops, the dirty border guards, as represented by the great Harvey Keitel, uh, what they're willing to do to like to, to make ends meet and, and like how far uh, will Jack Nicholson look the other way before he's unable to do so anymore. And there's a really interesting subplot about um, an illegal uh, immigrant whose baby has been kidnapped and, he, and it kind of represents his his guilt about the system, which is, okay, she she wasn't able to, to come into the country with her baby, but you know what? If she's going to be shipped back home, damn it, she should get to bring her baby with her. Oh, man, that drove me crazy trying to figure out who she was for the first 15, 20 minutes she's on camera. I was like, I know her. I know her. I know her. And then when I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, from Predator. Oh, of course. Uh, Elpidia Carrillo. Yes. 
that blew my mind because like I think this is the only other thing I've ever seen her in aside from Predator. I just really enjoyed watching the interplay between a low-key Nicholson and a low-key Keitel and Warren Oates does pop up for a few moments and that's always good. But I thought that the setting and the actors particularly elevate this into a very interesting movie. For me, the biggest problem is that I feel like Nicholson is the one guy they told, no matter what, just sit on your hands, don't react. There's almost nothing from him. Like Nicholson never really kicks into another gear. Does it feel to you like a direct response to The Shining, which is not the director, but it's Nicholson going, you know what? I will play this, you know, milquetoast kind of blah, blah. That's what I want now. I don't, I was just did The Shining and now I want to do something that's a little bit more sedate. You know, that's why I love when you look at his work as Eugene O'Neill in Reds, everything is small, but man, he's electric. There's not a moment in Reds that I'm not fascinated by what he's doing. Like he is playing everything. And I know this is meant to be the same thing. Like it's all meant to be small things that he's playing. I just don't feel like they wrote enough for him. to. There's not enough subtext. There's nothing going on under his skin. And that's what Nicholson does well for me. I will call Shoot the Moon the pick of the month and I will call uh, The Border your second because it is a conventional but very well made. And Shoot the Moon is uh, a familiar story, but not conventional. And I'm glad I finally saw it. I, if nothing else, I'm glad I saw that crazy earthquake at the beginning. And it feels like it's from a different film, but it's something else. And I, and it is interesting seeing how little progress has been made in the the way we think about borders and the way we think about that border in particular. And in what happens down there, I, I don't feel like this is a movie that necessarily feels like it was made 37 years ago. Because the problems that it portrays are still enormously contemporary. It would be cooler if I could say that a film called The Border was much more topical and prescient when you watch it today. And it doesn't really have that resi- resilience like that. It doesn't really have that that. Whoa, they made this film in 1981 about borders and it doesn't really have that kind of insight. It is in, in many ways kind of a conventional uh, procedural, but it's very entertaining, I thought. But next month we have a Charles Bronson sequel. We have Caveman's On The Quest For Something. We have a Francis Ford Coppola musical. Next month is something else. Next month is one of those 80s months where, man, it is no question what decade it is. You have giant star vehicles that went belly up. Not one, but two gay love stories. And uh, you have a Western with Willie Nelson. Man, seriously, what else can you ask for? Oh, you could ask for one of the best German war thrillers ever made. Dude, I will see you back here in two weeks for February of 1982. (laughs) Policeman!